The Academic Podcast Agency. Hello, my name is Dr. Helena Howe, and I'm a senior lecturer in law at the University of Sussex. Much of my work is centered around how the law shapes and is shaped by our relationships with non human animals. And for this podcast, I want to investigate how the law relates to one of our closest animal companions, the dog. This is not a programme about dog attacks or cruel owners. This is a podcast about the health and welfare of our dogs and what role the law has on influencing this ancient and very important cross-species relationship. Now, obviously, the dogs themselves can't communicate to us directly about laws or abstract human ideas, but we know a lot about what they need for a good life. And at the heart of what I'm interested in is the difference between law that serves humans that own dogs and law that serves the dogs themselves. And the problem I'm primarily interested in is known as extreme confirmation. Now, this is the technical term given to particular exaggerated physical traits in dogs that negatively impact their health and welfare. That is to say, breeding dogs so that they have deep skin folds, flat faces, very short tails or very long backs, that type of thing. Dogs with these features have become hugely popular, with many of us drawn to breeds like the Bulldog, the Pug and the Dachshund. Over time, we've engineered many breeds for many different reasons. But one of these reasons is because we want them to look a certain way. And for many dogs, this is at the expense of their quality of life. Some countries have introduced legal measures to address our desire for extreme physical traits that cause harm. And in the last few years, there's been a very heated landmark legal dispute about just this subject over in Norway. The breeding of British bulldogs has been banned, apparently, by the Oslo District Court yeah, in bulldogs Norway. Bulldogs can be prone to health issues if they're sort of bred selectively, oh. so I think which contravenes Norway's animal welfare. I mean, there's no doubt they're cute. So what to you is the um, appeal of the great British bulldog? Um, they overheat. They also struggle with a lot of arthritis. They tend to also be overweight because you can't exercise them too much. What are the health concerns that are being raised here? I mean, it... is the UK's national breed. Back in 2019, the Norwegian Society for the Protection of Animals, or the NSPA, took a number of breeding clubs to court. The NSPA argued that a law ensuring that dogs must be bred to a healthy standard had been broken, and the district court agreed, concluding that it was illegal to breed Cavalier King Charles Spaniels and English Bulldogs in Norway. The Court of Appeal agreed about Cavaliers, but overturned the ban on Bulldogs. This dispute was then elevated to the Supreme Court in 2023. And at the time of this recording, the legal fate of the English Bulldog is as yet undecided. So, so what do you think of all of this about the fact that Norway are saying that they're almost cancelling the, the British Bulldog? Why would they want to do that? It seemed to me that a good place to start with trying to answer some of these questions was with Rowena Packer an animal welfare scientist and expert witness in the Norwegian court case. My name is Rowena Packer. I am a lecturer in companion animal behaviour and welfare science at the Royal Veterinary College in London. Can you begin by describing, for somebody that doesn't know anything about it, the case being heard by the Norwegian Supreme Court? Yeah, absolutely. So 
in Norway, the NSPA, um, have taken a range of different breeding-related stakeholders to court now for a third time um, around the health or health problems in two specific breeds, in the English Bulldog and the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. First time it went to court, the NSPA was successful on both counts with both breeds, um, which unsurprisingly, I'm sure to everybody, was then um, contested. I ended up in the Court of Appeal and that's where I joined this story um, as an expert witness. What did you have to do? So my role as an expert witness was initially to provide expertise, evidence, information for the NSPA and their lawyers around the case. Specifically, I focused on the English Bulldog, given that my expertise is primarily lies in the sphere of brachycephaly. So just to help you decode some of this language, brachycephaly, when we're talking about dogs, refers to a short skull shape, which gives Um, them a flat-faced appearance. So my initial role was writing uh, my expert witness mandate, so bringing together what was then 13 years worth of work with myself and my colleagues, um, work that we'd worked on, but actually more internationally. What do we know about the health of English bulldogs? I was quite aware at that point that the initial case had very strongly focused on respiratory health in those breeds with a kind of subsidiary of reproductive challenges, which makes good sense as to why the bulldog was picked, perhaps over some of the brachycephalic breeds, because it is very well documented that they have great difficulty to give birth naturally and that veterinary intervention is actually more often than not needed for those bitches and puppies to survive. We have legislation in England and Wales in the form of the Animal Welfare Act 2006. Section 9 requires an owner to ensure that the needs of an animal for which they are responsible are met so that the animal is protected from pain, suffering, injury and disease and can express normal behaviour. So why would you want to breed a dog that didn't have the optimum chances of being healthy? Well, the answer is, of course, because we are greatly invested in what they look like. And when we push these visual traits past a certain point, we call this extreme confirmation. Can you give us a definition of what extreme confirmation in dogs is and why it's important? I think my own definition of uh, extreme confirmation in dogs would be dogs who have a physical phenotype that is outside of the normal and healthy range for their species. Can I just clarify, though, the word phenotype, what does that capture? So it captures the the visible physical features that we can see for these dogs. We know that dogs are the most morphologically diverse species on the planet um, and they are very um, separate uh, in their morphology from their progenitor species, the wolf. But some of them have been bred to very far human extremes where we have captured specific genetic mutations that have changed their body shape to a degree that it causes disease. Your more recent research, as I understand it, has looked at what makes people choose dogs with extreme confirmation. So can you tell us a bit about why we do that? We found that the owners with the strongest emotional bonds are often those who are female to start with, which is quite interesting from a kind of Mm. gender perspective, but also there's lots of discussion around kind of that child surrogate role of some dogs playing that. For some people, they'd say, no, they they don't, where others will openly say, you know, I'm a dog mom, this is my child. Mm, Um, Yeah. (laughs) But some really difficult, complicated feelings in there. But that, I mean, that can be a perfectly positive environment for a dog, you know, when you think about the amount of time and energy that goes into a dog. But it's when it's kind of masking the kind of darker underbelly of 
it being dogs that should just be bred to be more functional to start with they shouldn't need really basic daily hygiene as part of their life they should be able to clean their own bum they shouldn't have skin folds on their face that can so readily get infected or eyes that can get so sore you know this is an entirely human problem we could fix it very rapidly if we chose to prioritize the dog's welfare over our aesthetic and our kind of human preferences for what we might want out of a dog even if we're not thinking about the dog yeah what does this behavior do you think say about who we are culturally i think as we don't think too deeply about the wants and needs of the animals around us i think we say that we love animals but actually we're saying that quite often from our perspective we get an awful lot Mm. of good feeling from them we get lots of benefits from them but we aren't particularly critical in our thinking of what we're giving back to them i think we often think that so long as we've got the kind of appropriate provisions in terms of you know they're fed well they're walked appropriately they get a really nice environment to live in that it's all hunky-dory regardless of what else we've given them and i think given that all of these other kind of husbandry factors could be perfect but if you trapped an animal genetically and phenotypically in a body that's going to impair it for its whole life then it probably doesn't matter so much that we're doing all the other nice things so of the changes that you'd like to see happen have you have you seen any of those occurring Um, not in a very meaningful way in all honesty and it's horrible to take away from people who are engaging in this the amount of effort that is being put in here but I don't think if we were to look back on the past 10 years and another 10 years I don't think we would think anything very dramatic had really happened there's a lot more dialogue between stakeholders and obviously this is complex we've said there's a lot of different stakeholders involved who have very different motivations have very, very different experiences and views of the world So being able to discuss things is progressive in lots of ways because actually it's brought lots of new insights, often about what won't work as well as maybe what could work. Um, But I think realistically, you just have to look at the dogs. So no, and I really hate that, that actually I feel like I've become a bit more radical in wanting more dramatic reform because I feel like we're just going to be doing this forever otherwise and it's of no benefit to the dogs fundamentally for us to pretend that we're doing really good, meaningful things where actually they're so tiny that the dogs aren't going to feel it and that's kind of the crux of all of this so i think the idea of continuing as we are of purebred bulldog purebred bulldog is is not a good idea for animal welfare even when we're trying to use some selection tools to find the best of a very compromised population we're doing that because of people we're doing it to compromise for human wants rather than the dogs someone with decades of experience and a great passion for english bulldogs is tanya holmes Hello Tanya, it's lovely to meet you. I'm Helena. Thank you for talking to us. My name's Tanya. I've run Bulldog Rescue for the last 22 years. Before that, I was breeding and showing my dogs. Am I okay to say hello? Hello, darling. Hello, lovely. I am education lead on the education subcommittee for the Breed Council. I'm author of the Bulldog Bible and I've owned Bulldogs for 30 years. Now, he is what's known as a... Tanya runs a bulldog rescue centre and is well aware of what happens when breeders and consumers do not prioritise health. But basically, because he's a Dudley, he's like a pure dilute, as diluted as you can get before you get to Merle. And so he's got problems with his feet, with his skin. And in here, I've got two very naughty boys. 
For Tanya, educating the public and breeders to interpret the breed standards to avoid exaggerations that impact health is the way forward. But she's also convinced that there is a stronger role for the law in regulating he's breeding. Bad. This one has got terrible, terrible yeasty skin. Oh. So he's the breed standard is the official description for how a dog should look and also details the temperament of any given breed. It's used to breed typical specimens and it's also the tool a judge would use for assessing dogs in the show ring. The bigger the problems get. Right. That's the babies. Yes. All oh, one of fad colours, and they've right. all got issues. None of them here are bred to the standard. No. And that's where us and everybody else has a problem. We all want the same thing. Healthy, happy dogs, yeah. right? But we're all coming at it from different angles. So, to me, um, who sees the really badly bred dogs come through... To me, that breed standard is the blueprint of a healthy dog. To other people, that breed standard is the reason why they are like they are. But a lot of that is in misinterpretation of the breed standard. Right. So beginning of this year, the Kennel Club did rewrite the whole standard again, mm. um, just clarified a few things. It, it cut out the need for a massive head. Um, and basically, it sh the, the dog should not look exaggerated in any form. If we were actually breeding these dogs to what they're supposed to look like, mm. we'd then start combating the problems. And if we could limit the kind of person that wanted to breed them in the first place... That would combat a lot of the problems. And I think for all the breeders that are selectively breeding and are trying to achieve so our breed isn't banned, because we don't want the breed banned, no. so it's in, in our interest to do it properly, yeah. we're outnumbered 100 to 1 by the breeders that are not doing it properly. So that's what we've got to start with. We've got to make it harder to breed. Right. Irresponsibly. Yeah. And so education is really important, but you seem to be suggesting that in addition, some more kind of robust regulatory measures yeah. would be helpful. Yeah. Right. And there's people out there that won't agree with that. Yeah. You know, when the, when the, when the breeding licence scheme came in, there was lots of breeders who went, oh, this is awful, this is terrible, why, why should I have to prove I can do this? And I, but to me, it's not about you. You've got nothing to hide. You can go and get your breeding licence and you'll sail through it, nothing. But mate down the road who's breeding it because he wants to make some quick money, he won't be able to do it. You, you encourage it to be done properly. Yeah. And the only way you're going to stop people not doing it properly is with sensible, well-thought-out legislation. Not just suddenly go, oh, that's it, you're not going to breed a flat-faced dog anymore. Banning the breeders, it, these dogs will still be bred, but they'll be bred underground, they'll be called something else... And there'll be no regulation around what's, what's being bred. This is what's going to happen in Norway. The, the, the good breeders have just gone, well, can't be asked with this. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to bother with it. 
The underground breeders have gone, oh, we just called them something else, like a Victorian or an old time or a... What? What? Because they're still being bred. They're just not being registered. And what little bit of control there was about what these breeders did, it's gone. Along with the Animal Welfare Act, we have the regulations governing activities involving animals. In England, those regulations came into force in 2018. They require breeders to be licensed by the local authority. And they prohibit breeding from dogs whose phenotype, or confirmation, is likely to result in harm to the health or welfare of that dog or its offspring. But this licensing regime doesn't catch all breeders. And with cash-strapped local authorities, monitoring and enforcement is uneven. One important and respected voice in this discussion is the Kennel Club, an institution that's been running for 150 years. My name's Charlotte McNamara and I'm the head of the health department at the Kennel Club. The Kennel Club operates the National Register of Pedigree Dogs and acts as a lobby group on issues involving dogs in the UK. This makes it an authority at many canine activities, such as dog shows like Crufts, and an important source of information and guidance for both breeders and dog owners. But it's worth noting, most dogs, even purebred dogs, will not be registered with a kennel club, and many will have been bred outside of the UK. So, so can you tell me what role the kennel club plays in relation to extreme confirmation in dogs? Okay, so primarily the kennel club is a registration body. So we're registering litters of puppies. In terms of my role in my department, we do an enormous amount to help people have a positive experience owning dogs. A huge amount of criticism is directed towards the kennel club for why don't you just not register them? And I think that it's a reasonable question to ask but I think that we have to understand that then we are almost saying that's no longer our problem I don't think we don't think that's good for the welfare of those dogs while we register these dogs we have some ability to inform and influence and hopefully eventually regulate health testing and welfare I came to the Kennel Club initially really to improve the relationship between breeders and the breed communities for breeders to become more involved in health. We hold webinars and we do a number of sources of information on conditions that can affect any breed or dog. And we do an enormous amount to help and improve the lives of those dogs throughout their life. So can you explain to me what changes you would like to see in terms of extreme confirmation in dogs. So I'm thinking particularly kind of what what are your end goals? What would you like to see in 10 or 20 years time, for example? I think that it would be great to see everybody move to a more moderate example of what they desire. So in the introductory paragraph to our breed standards, which I appreciate many people don't know, they don't read them, they're not relevant to them. I think we accept that. We do say that any trait that is desirable should only be present in the appropriate measure. And I think that it's really, really overlooked, but there should be a way to communicate the sentiment of that much more broadly, that it's fine to want a shorter muzzled dog, potentially, if the evidence allows, 
But what's the threshold of that? And we are okay to have dogs with different tail conformations, but but where's the risk levels? Mm-hmm. And the reason we have a breed health and conservation plan for every breed is to surface this information. I'm not for policing people's choices to a degree because I think that I'm not sure we have evidence of where that's been effective. But if everybody just moved to back a few steps to a more moderate position of what they desire, and I think judges could do that in the show ring, I think breeders could do that, put health and temperament first. Right. You know, I think how we've got down this path is people wanting more and more and more of specific traits. Mm-hmm. They select aggressively towards those traits, mm. and then they select aggressively for these traits that you think, you know, you love this round, cute, cuddly face or this the excessive skin, there's a version that's less extreme right. that, that we all need to start to be happier with because it's better for dogs. So while it seems there's no room for doubt that extreme conformation is an animal welfare issue that needs to be addressed, the question of what to do about it is complicated by the way in which different groups understand the evidence that exists and what this evidence appears to present to them as the best solution. One way forward could be only to breed from dogs who score well on tests for major health risks. A key defence of the English bulldog in the Norway case is that testing can support a programme of breeding from the healthiest dogs. In partnership with a team of researchers at the University of Cambridge, the Kennel Club have developed a scheme which breeders can use to have their dog's breathing ability tested prior to breeding. So can you explain the role of health testing um, in addressing the issues arising from extreme conformation? Health testing is a tool that breeders can use to better make informed decisions based on evidence, essentially. So this dog is better than this dog in this particular area. So, for example, you might be weighing up an eye scheme certificate with a breeding with a breathing scheme certificate um, with potentially other conformational aspects and features that you're already aware of, including temperament. So there's a lot to balance, and I think that's where breeders need to make the decision about which breeds right for them. The Kennel Club has a charitable trust. Um, We have donated almost 12 million to date to health and research and welfare related projects. Um, We have invested £700,000 in breathing in BOAS research since 2010 and that enabled us to use the publication from that research to work with the, the key Uh, researcher and expert um, to develop the respiratory function grading scheme and the evidence is there and this is the most cost-effective non-invasive tool that we have available for this condition at the moment and if more people adopted it used it we believe that we could collect a data set that would significantly show us what the problem was, you know, the depth of the problem across the different breeds, and that we could do so much to improve and reduce this issue. DNA tests are very popular with breeders because it gives them uh, a green or red light, essentially. So yes, no, um, proceed, don't. And I think that that's 
kind of a tool that breeders find a lot easier to apply. Mm. With extreme confirmation, the schemes that we have relate to complex disease. There's there's a multitude of factors. Mm. And unfortunately, we're not able to give um, as, as clear an indication. As Charlotte highlights, the health risks of extreme confirmation are complex. And it's not clear yet whether a good score on a test for a parent dog will mean healthier offspring. There is also a debate over whether we have a sufficiently wide gene pool in some breeds to improve health effectively and quickly enough. If we don't, then crossbreeding with a different breed could be an answer. But if you're a breeder of pedigree dogs who is passionate about a breed and your customers want purebred puppies then it's easy to see why this is not an attractive option. And it comes with its own risks to health and temperament. In your view, can we get more innately healthy brachycephalic breeds like the English Bulldog by breeding within the breed itself? Or do we potentially need to outcross those dogs with other dogs of a more moderate confirmation? Um, I think at the place we are in time now we need the breeders all of the breeders to use the tools available so that we are able to assess with the data where are we so I think that breed communities would ardently believe that there is you know that their dogs are healthy and that there are examples that are very good ambassadors for the breed and that they do not need to ever outcross I think it's fair to say that there's people in different areas in a different spectrum that would say I don't believe these dogs can ever be healthy and I don't believe that this is is possible and I think the kennel club sits really firmly on the outside of a debate around belief and is saying we will go with the evidence. Now as a lawyer the importance of assessing the evidence is something I can understand and indeed the Norwegian court case is doing exactly this by presenting evidence in support of and against the future breeding of the English Bulldog. But in her role as head of health at the Kennel Club, Charlotte is equally interested in ideas of how you implement meaningful behaviour change. And this seems to me to raise important questions about the relationship between evidence, the law, and the policing of people's behaviour. We do have to really assess, in terms of how the law could be useful the public facing aspect of the law not just what we can all interpret and debate and discuss and also what's practical and what's meaningful and what's potentially more theoretical or does not have an immediate solution that we could apply so Mm. you know hypothetically a belief is that we should not accept x but Is that practical? Can we get large numbers of people to Mm. do that? And I think when we talk about the law, we need to be focused on progress and not perfection. You know, what the the perfect breeder and the perfect person producing dogs would look like this. Okay, but what's the reality of where we are now and how do we make progress? And I think that licensing safeguarding around welfare Mm. and breeding it's close to my heart it's close to many people's hearts and I think that that's where the law has a real impact. So then what does it mean to focus on the data as Charlotte suggests and not be persuaded by more cultural or emotional arguments about what the bulldog should look like? 
Someone who's been trying to solve exactly this problem is Dan O'Neill. My name is Dan O'Neill. I'm Associate Professor of Companion Animal Epidemiology at the Royal Veterinary College. Dan worked as a first opinion veterinary surgeon for 20 years, where he says he felt frustrated by the lack of hard evidence in some of the decisions he was being asked to make. You plough through your daily caseload and you're trying to help animals one by one by one and help their owners. And that's fine and it's really important. But actually, this is a population level problem and it needs a population level solution. Dan's search for greater evidence eventually led him to leave his practice and study for a PhD at the Royal Veterinary College. And this work has produced something called VetCompass, a database of over 25 million animals collected anonymously from veterinary practices throughout the UK. Using this data, Dan and other researchers have been able to build an evidence-based picture of how extreme confirmation impacts dogs' health and well-being. Those computer systems hold the records from animals that are seen by vets and we collect all that information from hundreds, thousands in fact, of veterinary clinics every day, put it together and then we use it to answer questions. And with the dog breeds, the the approach that I've been taking for the last decade is an approach called innate health. So issues like whether you have a tail, right? Um, Whether you have a a muzzle, whether you have uh, eyelids that can close over your eyeball. So in other words, we as humanity have taken a decision that we like the look of a dog with no tail. To get a dog with no tail, we have to select for mutations such that the vertebral column uh, ends early. So the vertebral column is shortened. These dogs tend to have lots of spinal issues, twisted spines, hemivertebrae, missing vertebrae. So we are actively choosing poor innate health to meet our need for a dog that we think looks cute, right? Obviously, there's lots of other types of health. There's behavioural health, there is genetic health, there is uh, health issues from accidents, there is cancer, da-da-da. But baked-in health is the health you're, that you're born with, or in many breeds, the health you're not born with. So could we create healthier dogs within each of these breed categories. Can we do that? So basically there is a perception that breeds are part of nature and they come from nature and they are natural. But obviously breeds breed with each other because we dictate that they do. They look the way they are because of man and that a breed is very little to do with nature. Breeds are completely man-generated. So that it in one sense is a very useful place to get to because if they're a figment of our imagination, we can also choose to change them. I first started going to Crofts in uh, 1991 was the first year I went there, right? Um, and I, I, I've seen the bulldogs that were there then. Mm. And obviously I've got Crofts every year now, so I was there again this year. Right. Um, and those dogs are so different. Those are like a different breed, right? Really? The, the I haven't been for years. Are, Oh, they are so much better. The, the modern bulldogs are so much better. They still have a long way to go, but they are so much better. So that shows, A, they can change. That means that those changes are being brought about within the breed. They are, right? okay, so, so right. So there is enough variation within the bulldogs to move them, right? For some of the breeds, there may not be enough variation within them. Pugs and French bulldogs, I suspect, probably don't. Who knows? There hasn't been enough push over the last 20 years to change them, but they might need to um, get alternative gene sources. So in other words, uh, outcrossing. 
what are the key changes that you would like to see and who has the power to make those changes? There, there have been lots and lots and lots of changes. There has been uh, lots of different attitudes. But what isn't really changing so far is the public fascination with extreme confirmation. Um, and uh, we have tried to take the approach of um, using evidence to change opinions. Um, it's now becoming pretty clear that the drive to own extreme confirmation is stronger than the rational awareness of the health issues that's driven by the evidence. Um, uh, so, so over time, we're starting now to try and take different approaches um, and to try and promote the innate health and the dog-centric approach. How do we get the public on board with that? So the public tend to follow what is the current zeitgeist or spirit of the nation or what is the current belief, right? So as soon as you get some celebrities and you get a movement going that says that pugs and French bulldogs and English bulldogs are the thing to have, everyone lumps on board. And that's essentially what happened a decade ago. Um, historically, the power on what was the most popular breeds did reside with certain groups. The Kennel Club had a lot of power. Now that power has been taken over by social media and the media and the advertising companies. Um, and those companies um, have been selling a message of extreme confirmation. Um, so it, it is very difficult. The groups, the various groups involved, uh, all have a say. So the veterinary organisations, the charities, the kennel club, the government. But actually, the one group that ultimately holds the power is the public, the general public, and specifically the part of the public who, who buy a dog. Can you see a role for the law in helping people do that? Absolutely, there is. And I think there is a huge role for the law. We, we just haven't applied it very effectively so far. So in the UK, we have um, an Animal Welfare Act, so a law. I don't think anyone who, who would actually look at that law would say, oh, OK, it is OK to have a dog without a tail, to have a dog that can't blink, to have a dog that they can't breathe or give birth. So within the law, we already have these laws. In one sense, yes, you're right. A court case is very useful and in one sense, Norway is kind of taking one for the welfare team by, by having that court case. The, the banning is a, is a real challenge because what is it you're banning? Yes. So, so are we banning breeding or are we banning owning? Well, there's already hundreds of thousands of these dogs. Are all these owners now going to become criminals? Yeah. Right? What, what do we do uh, with those dogs? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. How would we what enforce we do that? Yeah. Is it banning uh, rescuing? And ultimately, are you trying to ban uh, us even thinking of a breed? Because if we can't own or breed or whatever, but if the breed still exists as a concept, well, how can you ban that, right? There isn't the, the thought police that's just going to go through our heads and ban us from thinking. And if we have a picture of a dog, is that then illegal? Um, so we're not allowed to have pictures. Are we going to have big bonfires in the middle of the town and start burning all images of these dogs? It, it's where does that stop? Right. And the other thing is that it doesn't particularly get at the core issue because the core issue isn't the breed. The breed isn't the issue. The extreme confirmation is the issue. And uh, uh, when we're banning a breed, we're not solving the root cause problem, which is our human acceptance that it is OK to breed a dog 
with a confirmation that is associated with severe health mm. issues, right? Yeah. That's really the core issue. And unless we get back to that core or root cause issue, these sticky plasters, they yeah. might sound very um, catchy and they might give nice sound bites. You know, yeah, I'm ex-party or ex-minister and I've banned French bulldogs. Well, really, you haven't probably helped that much. Right. as much as you think. No. And I know from uh, a legal point of view, as a legal person, you're really keen on the law being the law. But the bigger thing for me is the other law, the social law. I want that concept to be the fur coat concept um, from 20, 30, 40 years ago, where everyone who was wealthy expressed their wealth and their uniqueness and their specialness by wearing a fur coat, right? Nowadays, nobody would do that, right? We look around, we look to see what other people are doing and then we do the same right and basically innate health once that becomes part of social license to operate then that is a law a social law and that's the most powerful bit so this is clearly a complex area where feelings run high but what does breeding extremes tell us about where we are as modern humans and what does it say about how effective law really is in changing behaviour from being led by tradition or fashion to being informed by evidence. A court case like this is sure to have an impact throughout Europe and affect dog breeding for years to come. But the real reason this is so important is because it raises fundamental questions about what dogs are and what we want from them, and vitally, what they need from us. So what can we do to give dogs the best chance of a healthy life? Well, as members of the public, we can all make sure that the dogs we choose have the physical features that give them a lower risk of poor health or welfare in the longer term. And what about the law? It seems there is a role for the law in helping to shape public attitudes around extremes, as well as putting a stop to poor breeding practices. Ideally, of course, we would all change our behaviour without legal intervention. But when we don't, it's the job of the law to step in and protect the vulnerable. Whilst legally banning the breeding of the English bulldog sends a strong message about the problem of extreme confirmation, such a ban is highly contentious and may have a number of undesirable consequences, including alienating those trying to breed responsibly and driving that very breeding underground. Enforcement is also likely to prove incredibly difficult. So what should we do? Join me, Dr Helena Howe, in the next episode where we will reflect on the outcome of the Norway case and think more about where we might go from here. For more information about the issues raised in this podcast, please follow the web addresses in the show notes. This podcast has been written and produced by me, Dr Helena Howe, and Will Hood of the Academic Podcast Agency.